Uh, I want to introduce our speaker this morning, Scott Bryant. For y'all that are visiting today, Redeemer started 16 years ago. The reason we started Redeemer was to both reach the unlost and to equip believers to serve. And one of the great benefits that we have seen is uh, numbers and scores of men who have left here, gone to seminary, who are now in the ministry. Uh, in fact, uh, Rob Edwards, who's here with his wife Angie, Rob was the RUF campus minister for, I guess, a decade. Many men came through his ministry, were called into the ministry. Uh, case in point would be uh, Chad Middlebrooks, who's sitting in the back there with his kids, uh, who's ministering in, uh, in Columbia, Tennessee. Uh, so we're very privileged to see that God is at work and so many men have been called. Uh, Scott w was on staff with us for a number of years. Uh, he was a deacon at Redeemer, and also he headed up a mercy ministry uh, for a number of years. Uh, God called uh, Scott into the ministry. Um, uh, afterwards, he went to Westminster Seminary, and uh, he has been working in, Dar in Darby, Upper Darby uh, in Philadelphia. He's working among uh, a very uh, diverse group of people, mainly uh, Sikhs. Um, but uh, Scott is a dear brother in Christ. Uh, it, it was interesting, Scott, I was thinking about the fact that you and I were at Vanderbilt at the same time, uh, but you were not interested at that time <laughs> in RUF or Jesus, for that matter. Uh, but after he left uh, Vanderbilt, the grace of God came. The Holy Spirit uh, worked in his life. He was converted. And, uh, and so now you're preaching the gospel. And we love you, and we're grateful for you, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you. pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much uh, for your word and for the hope that you instill in this world, in lowly people like ourselves. And we just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your presence and to your voice in Jesus Christ this day, we pray in his name. Amen. It is a privilege to be here today and to um, bring God's word to you. My wife, Karen, and I, uh, we enjoy mysteries. My favorite show on TV right now is um, it's called Psych, and it's basically a mystery. Um, Sean Spencer pretends to be a psychic and, and gets contracted, hired by the San Diego Police Department to solve um, criminal cases. And, um, and while I was here in Athens, um, Beth and Randy Beck, if you know them, they... Um, got me watching a series called Poirot, which is a BBC series that, um, that features Agatha Christie's um, character in a lot of her books, um, Investigator Hercule Poirot. So uh, my wife and I still enjoy watching that. Um, mysteries, in general, they draw a lot of interest. And really, every good story has some element of mystery in it. What's going to happen? And in life in general... Um, there are things we treasure that have mystery to them, like the birth of a child or the opposite sex. We, uh, we can't quite grasp their depths, but these things are profound, and we treasure them, and we look into them. Well, the Bible would tell us that the greatest mystery ever is the mystery of godliness. Now, if I tell you that I'm going to talk about a mystery today, that may sound at least a little bit interesting. But if I tell you I'm going to talk about godliness today, 
Um, that may not quite go over the same way. So is the mystery, the greatest mystery ever really, a mystery of godliness? Um, well, in context here, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy. Timothy's his protege, um, a leader, rising leader in the church. And he's giving Timothy instructions on how believers in the church ought to order uh, their worship and their life. And in one sense, Paul's statement is in line with the usual definitions of godliness, um, piety or godly living. But there's something unique about this godliness that Paul's talking about. There's two things. First, Paul, when Paul lays out the mystery of godliness, he begins talking about a person. Great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. And the five lines that follow also have he as their subject. So when Paul talks about godliness, he's, he's talking about a person. So godliness for him is not an abstract concept. Godliness has to do with, guess who, the person of God. And here specifically, God the Son, Jesus Christ. And this means that godliness cannot be done at a distance. It's not a solo endeavor. Godliness cannot be done at a distance from God. So the person of God is key to godliness and the greatest mystery ever. And second, when Paul describes the mystery of godliness, he tells a story. So Paul's giving Timothy all these instructions about how the church should do worship and life, about how Timothy needs to lead and fight the good fight. But right in the middle of these instructions, here's this verse, this great summary of God's redemption of humanity in Jesus Christ. It's a story. Let me read it for you. This is uh, found in your bulletin, 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So Paul tells a story when he lays out the mystery of godliness. Now one thing, um, one important thing I learned at Redeemer when I was here came out of meetings. Um, How it always began meetings with a Bible study. It didn't matter how long the agenda was, um, he'd always begin with a Bible study. And lots of times that would end up taking up most or even all of the meeting itself. But the initiative to begin with Scripture framed and fueled the rest of what went on, even if we didn't check everything off the agenda list. And that spills out into the life of the church, into, into our lives as we, as, we leave, as we go from here. And so, Paul also, in this letter of instructions, he pauses to consider the great mystery of godliness. He tells briefly the story of what God is doing. He sums up the faith. It's a simple story that's a profound mystery. So godliness is about a person and a story, who God is and what God's doing. So have we shortchanged godliness? How many of us, in seeking to be good or giving up on trying to be good, have mistaken godliness altogether? So godliness here is not just personal piety, which any religion can prescribe. Godliness is embracing the totality of Christ. Godliness is embracing Jesus, who he is and what he's doing. In a moment, we're going to go through these these six lines that lay out this great mystery of godliness. 
And I want us to be asking ourselves, where do we fit in? What does this have to do with me? As creatures made in God's image, who God is and what he's doing has everything to do with who we are. It will frame our lives. How we respond to it will frame who we are and what we're doing. You know, there's, there's so much we can do, uh, so much we can get a hold of today with, with technology, so many people we can get in touch with. Yet most of the conversations um, going on in the world around us and things streaming off the Internet into our living rooms and classrooms are devoid of mention of God. So it's easy just to take in more and more and go through more and more of life without ever asking the question, where is God in all this? And the result can be that people think uh, that God is very distant or even irrelevant to the things around us in the world. And we can do this in all kinds of aspects of our lives, in our jobs, um, in our kids' activities, in pursuing degrees or popularity. Uh, We can even do it in church. But if we don't see God in what he's doing, then everything else will be like a vapor, just fading in its significance. And people inside the church and out it will find their lives empty. The Bible says God is doing something great. That's what our text says today. Storyteller C.S. Lewis said this, The one thing Christianity can't be is moderately important. Either it's untrue, in which case it's of no importance at all, or it's true, in which case it demands your whole life. How I relate to God and his story will define my story. It will define what we're doing and where we're headed. So the big picture matters. It gives meaning to all the little pictures of our lives. So let's look into this mystery today. First, he was manifested in the flesh. This is how the mystery begins. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Atlanta and then lived for a few years in Athens before moving to Philadelphia. And uh, Southerners are known for their hospitality. And there's a lot of cultures in this world that value hospitality a great deal. In fact, some um, definitely outdo uh, Southerners. And one thing that's nice in working with internationals is that um, you can just show up at their door unannounced and um, be invited in in a lot of cultures and treated real nicely. So one thing I do um, in the ministry my wife and I carry on is manage a multicultural United Soccer Club. It's a youth soccer club. Um, in Upper Darby with families and coaches coming from 29 nationality backgrounds. And even after the season is over, it's cool because I can stop by uh, the Singh's house, um, who are Sikh from India, or I can stop by the El Sayed's house, who are Muslim from Egypt, and connect with that family. I don't have to have an invitation. And what I've come to realize is that for many, many, um, this visit actually honors them. Um, which is kind of humbling to me, but that is the truth. And, and the truth is that most um, internationals in the U.S., they, aren't, uh, they don't have Americans coming over to their homes, and they have seldom set foot in an American home. So um, coming by, for whatever reasons, was received as paying them honor or respect. It was received as an act of caring for them. Well, in an immeasurably greater way, God honored humankind. God came near. It's like John says at the beginning of his gospel, the word, who is God, was made flesh and dwelt among us. He humbled himself. He became one of us. The Son of God took on a human nature. 
Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for your sake, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And theologian, theologian Herman Bovink writes that the incarnation of Christ is the most magnificent proof of God's compassion. So Jesus is among us in compassion. He was manifested in the flesh. And how does this part of the mystery touch us? Well, first of all, God is near. He wants us to enjoy his presence. But do we want him near us? When I was headed to Westminster Seminary, a friend from high school um, gave me this advice. He said, guard your quiet time with God. And that kind of struck me as interesting. Um, You would have thought that someone headed to seminary had that part down already. But he was right. I did need to guard my quiet time with God. Even in, the, even in the atmosphere of seminary and studying the things of God, my, my personal time with God was, um, was always threatened. It's, this is not something we graduate from in the Christian life. So I want to encourage you to pray and spend time with God. Enjoy Him and do so every day. And encourage others and lead others to do the same. Because God has things to give us. He has peace and joy and hope that he wants to instill in us. And most of all, he has, he's giving himself. And God coming near should also encourage us to approach others, to show care and compassion to the people around us. So do we approach that new person at school or that awkward person at work, people who are unpopular? You know, it's very easy to bypass people and to take them for granted. And it's easy to take even the people in our own families for granted. But we can show this kind of care and concern to others because God himself has come near. He was manifested in the flesh. Next, he was vindicated by the spirit. This line could also be rendered justified in the spirit. And again, it's talking about Jesus Christ. But what did Jesus have to be vindicated from? Why did he have to be justified? I thought he was perfect, right? And he was perfect. But part of him being manifested in the flesh was him entering in fully to the sorrowful condition of human existence. He didn't refuse to take on our sin. And in perfect solidarity with his people, he was treated as one who was ungodly. He became a curse for the world on a cross and before God. He was condemned. And death was the penalty and the seal of his condemnation. But on the third day, he was vindicated by the Spirit. This line is making reference to the resurrection. Resurrection was the removal of that verdict of condemnation. It's the Spirit's public declaration before heaven and earth of Jesus' righteousness. And here's how this touches us. That Jesus, while Jesus went to the cross alone and rose alone, he did not do this only with reference to himself. He bore the sins of his people He represented them in a way that only the God-man could. And the outcome? Jesus and all those represented in him are vindicated by the Spirit. And here's where power really shoots forth from this mystery of godliness. Out of condemnation comes God's approval. In the world's reign of death, a reign of resurrection life begins. And in the midst of our sin and in spite of it, godliness appears. Jesus bore our sins 
so that we could bear his righteousness. And as a result, an utterly desirable godliness through union with Christ and his death and resurrection comes. A godliness that we can lay hold of. Um, In golf, as you who play the game know, there's a kind of tournament called a scramble. And teams of four play against each other. And uh, so a team tees off, all four of them, and, um, and the best shot is determined. And the other three inferior shots get to pick up their ball and take their, their next shot from where that best ball landed. And all the shots proceed that way. Now what if you could be matched up with Tiger Woods in a scramble tournament? His shot counts for your shot every time. Now that would be pretty awesome. But that's infinitesimal compared to our opportunity to get matched up with Jesus. Jesus was vindicated so that real people, like you and me, could also be vindicated, justified before God. You know, I have this tendency to justify myself. Um, I may say it, or I usually just think it, uh, but I come up with all these stories about why I can leave the dishes undone, um, or why it's okay that I was late to such a meeting, such and such a meeting, uh, my heart is given towards hearing someone vindicate me, and I tend to think that I'm the best one to do it. But vindication has been done in Jesus Christ, and if I can believe that, then I can put away these stories. I can live freely before God. I can own my sin before God and the world. And live freely. I can let God's story define mine, and I can get rid of all my lame, life sucking stories that I come up with. So, likewise, don't live in regret. Yesterday, yesterday's regrets or today's regrets, because God has vindicated you. If you believe on Christ, God has vindicated you by His Spirit. And this is what God's doing in the world. Okay, the next line. He was seen by angels. Now, why mention angels? Um, Angels really don't show up that often in the course of the text of Scripture. So why mention them? Well, angels do show up, um, not all that often, but sometimes like in movies and television. um, They're touched by an angel. And um, John Travolta was in a movie where he played an angel once. And, um, and of course, um, sure... Um, on television over the holidays, It's a Wonderful Life, with Jimmy Stewart played a lot, and that features angels. Um, and I don't remember any of those angels making much mention of Jesus, um, Jesus' birth or his resurrection or his ascension. Um, so I don't really know about those fictional angels. But what I do know is that real angels look into this mystery that we're talking about today. They look, and, and they appear in, in pivotal moments in God's story, namely the birth, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Angels serve as witnesses and messengers from heaven on these occasions. And Peter tells us this in his first letter. The things that have now been announced, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that followed, these are things into which angels long to look. That's 1 Peter 3.12. The mystery of godliness is even a mystery to angels. It's something they look into with holy awe. Angels like to see what God is doing in our world. So, what about us? Shouldn't we also look into these things? You know, God became a man for the world to get to know. 
Um, as Hebrews tells us, it's not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus didn't die for angels. He died and was vindicated for us. Now, who are we to receive such a great mystery? But here we are. We have heard it. And hopefully we have received it. And God is revealing to us the story of stories. The story of stories. He's laying out a precious jewel for us. So it's better than anything we can stream off the internet. It's better than any wine we can buy. It's better than any band we can follow. He's given us this great mystery to look into that angels long to look into. But often we're too drowsy to look into these things ourselves, aren't we? I mean, that's to our shame. But God wants us to experience the risen Christ. So we should read our Bibles. We should worship together, sing songs together. We should be involved in one another's lives, sharing one another's burdens in community groups and other, in other ways um, with our families, worshiping God and drawing nearer to him because he wants us to look into these things along with the angels. He was seen by angels, so he should likewise be seen by us. This past year, um, in our home church, City Line PCA Church uh, in West Philadelphia, a young couple, Steve and Vanessa, had been trying to get pregnant, and they tried the involved, very involved process of in vitro fertilization. And sure enough, um, Vanessa is now expecting twins very soon. And in September, some other friends that used to lead our community group, um, after, uh, Dana and Alex, after 40 hours of labor, they had baby Henry, and they rejoiced, and they had a party. And these things were good news through the life of our congregation. And it's great to get good news. And it's the nature of good news to spread like it did through our congregation and to result in praising of God. Well, the mystery of godliness is the greatest news. And so naturally, as this mystery was revealed after Christ's resurrection, it was proclaimed among the nation. And that's our fourth line here. Christ and him crucified, what God's doing in this world and for the world, was preached the news spread. And it didn't just go to the Jews, the, the nation of Israel. It went out to the ethne. It's the word uh, that we have, uh, that we get our word in English, um, ethnicity. Jesus was preached among the people groups, the nations of the world, to those who were far off. And what's happening is the fulfillment of numerous Old Testament promises, including Isaiah 66, 18. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. And today, by God's grace and his plan, Jesus is still preached. This is why Redeemer was planted 16 years ago, and it's why subsequent churches like Resurrection have been planted, and a new church plant in Madison, right? And it's why my wife and I lead the Upper Darby ministry among least-reached immigrant groups and next-generation immigrants. This is today's good news. So since the resurrection, followers of Jesus, obviously, have been out there spreading this good news. But again, who are we to tell of this great mystery? And I, I don't know. Indeed, I, I say, who are we? But the fact is that we've gotten to see into these things that angels long to look into. And here we are. God's given us the same great privilege of telling of his good news. People need to hear this story, too. All nations. It's the, and this mystery, which is the heartbeat of history and Christianity, 
We get to be instruments of its unveiling. And it's a simple message. You don't have to go to college or even any school to be able to spread it, to tell of it. And finally, it's just the nature of good news, to be told. And this is of global import. So we, the body of Christ, are to spread it. So, share the love that flows from being near God and involved in what he's doing. Share the mystery of godliness before the peoples around you. Let's look at line five. He was believed on in the world. My family likes the Will Ferrell movie, Elf. Um, In the movie... Uh, the Santa sleigh is powered by belief in Santa. Um, He also has a turbo rocket as a backup. But if the rocket fails, then his sleigh only flies if there's enough belief in Santa. Now, the Bible would tell us that if believing in Jesus worked this way, that the sleigh would take a nosedive every time. Psalm 14 says, There is no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. Christ was was proclaimed, as Paul says. But that he was believed on in the world is not just a matter of course. But the sum of this whole mystery is that God is doing something. And he's doing something to draw far-off people to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So no matter how far off, he is drawing people near. No matter how far away physically, as the gospel went forth, No matter how far away morally, nothing can stop when God is drawing someone to himself. In God's superintending economy, he's drawing people to believe in Jesus. And so how does this part of the mystery touch us? Well, again, we should be in awe if we know Christ. We should be in awe. And when it comes to sharing this great mystery, the cool thing is that God has prepared people in advance to hear it and receive it. So our job, in the meantime, is really to do what this line says, to believe on Jesus. And that means trusting him for everything. Trust and obey. So we get to be near God. We get to be made a part of his story. So enjoy God and share the love that flows from that. Share the story that God's involved you in, his redemption in Christ. God is calling everyone to the gladness of knowing him being made right with him, and being with him forever. This mystery, this story is for your kids. It's for your grandkids. It's for your schoolmates. It's for your workmates. It's for grocery store clerks. It's for police. It's for frat boys. It's for retirement communities. It's for everyone. If you've been around Pastor Hal Farnsworth for very long, you've probably heard him refer to spheres of influence. And We all have them. The circles we run in, the people we connect with, the people we cross paths with day in and day out. These are our spheres of influence. Well, those spheres that you have and you uniquely have and other people don't have, those spheres need to hear this story. So be a living example in those spheres. Pray for God to give you opportunities to tell this story, to reveal this mystery in those spheres. Karen and I have been living in Upper Darby for four years now, doing this ministry full-time. And we've not seen any people come to Christ yet. We've seen some movement amidst spiritual conversation, um, but we've not seen the, the movement we are hoping to see. And that's hard. And our struggle right now is, you know, God, what, do you, what are you doing and what do you want us doing? 
Um, one thing that we've seen improved is that God has raised up additional laborers. But as we look out in the harvest, the harvest is still just as vast. And there's still a need for more laborers. The, the, the opportunity, the need is huge. But pr- so pray for us that, that we will be faithful and bold in our believing on Jesus as we live the story and tell the story that we have here before us today. But as we live the story and tell the story, here's one reminder. It must be Christ that we believe on and tell of. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end of this six-line creed in our text. And he must be the beginning, the middle, and the end of our lives and our witness, too. So the last line, he was taken up in glory. In Acts 1, Jesus' disciples watch Christ ascend into heaven. He's the pioneer into heaven. He's the second Adam, the new man, worthy to enter heaven on our behalf. And here's the application. Just like believers are connected to Jesus in being vindicated by the Spirit, so also Jesus, being taken up in glory, means we will be too. The Holy Spirit assures us that this is to come. We will be taken up in glory the same way Jesus was. This is where we're headed. So if you can bring this part of the story back into everyday life, you will have gone a long way in the faith. Because life is hard. There are so many struggles around us and in our own households. The Sikh community in Upper Darby over the past year, um, in addition to the um, the story that got national attention of the shootings in the Sikh temple of Wisconsin. Um, there's been uh, a murder-suicide. Um, I met a young man who had himself had attempted uh, to commit suicide. Um, there's alcoholism. Um, kids on the soccer team, or at least one kid on the soccer team that hates his dad. Um, and the Sikh com- community is just an example that they're, uh, they are like the rest of us. Life is hard. It's full of struggles. And we need the hope of Christ and the hope of where he's bringing us when we're connected with him in our lives today. Heaven and knowledge of Christ fuels hope because it won't always be this way. The advent of Christ into this world ultimately means our advent into heaven. God is near. But if that nearness seems thin to you, you can pray two things. One is, is pray that God would reveal his presence to you. He does desire you to experience his presence, and he sent his son to die for you to have that. Pray that you would experience his presence. And then pray, you can pray the last prayer in the Bible, which is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because we do want these sorrows and these, this darkness to pass. It's anticipating the glory to come. So pay attention to where this mystery is headed and bring it in to your everyday life because Jesus was taken up in glory. So this is the mystery of godliness. This is what God's doing in a nutshell. Everything else God's doing, and he's doing a lot, it finds its center here. And this mystery ought to frame who we are and what we're doing. Many of us live worried lives. We live like we don't know what God is doing. And then we're anxious because we don't know what we're going to do. But God is near, as this verse tells us. He's drawing people to vindication and glory through Jesus Christ. This verse is simple truth, 
but God calls it great. So receive it and live it. This mystery of godliness is to be treasured by the church. This is what's precious. This is what we guard in the face of vying agendas. This is what we enjoy and look into in the midst of life's struggles. This is what we spread wherever God takes us in the world. He was manifest in the flesh, so draw near to God now. You have been vindicated with Christ. Don't live in yesterday's regrets. He was seen by angels. Let's look into these things daily. He was proclaimed among the nations. Share the love that flows from being near God and a part of what he's doing. He was believed on in the world. Trust and obey Jesus in all your spheres of influence. He was taken into glory. In the midst of the everyday, remember where this mystery is headed. This is what we confess. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that the mystery of godliness is great indeed. We thank you that you have revealed it to us. It is utter privilege, Lord. And now let it frame and direct our lives, um, our lives as individuals, our lives as families and households, our lives corporately as a church and as community in this world, as long as you have us here, Lord. We look forward to what you will do uh, because of what you've done in Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.